twee zinnen zegt die hier is. Weet je. En ik hoef verder niet uitgebreid te zijn. Maar... En dan begin, begin ik met een soort plaatje. En dan zien we het wel. Oké, okay, good evening. Can you hear me? Is, is the mic working? Yes. Oké, okay, I want to welcome all of you on behalf of the Pan American Center. And I want to welcome the Dutch panel. And I want to welcome Jan Honout, who is a representative of Penn in Amsterdam. As you know, Penn is an organization of writers, and one of the things that we do is to bring literature to you, uh, our own literature and foreign literature, and tonight it's the turn of the Dutch. I think what we know here about Holland is uh, that the government is very, very extravagant. It makes us giggle. And that lately, a few times, Holland has been on the front page of the New York Times. Amsterdam is going to be without traffic. And uh, gay, openly gay in the Dutch army, why not? And euthanasia, uh, they have been doing this very comfortably, apparently, for quite a while. But I have a feeling that not too much is known here about Dutch lit. And tonight, we'll do something about it. And uh, I would like to introduce to you the panel and allow me to pronounce the names the way they ought to be pronounced. Later on, when you ask questions, you're on your own. Uh, but not only, they are from Holland. It used to be my country, so let me indulge myself. Gerard Jan Reinders, Suzanne van Loofhuizen, Henk Bernhard, who has played you while it's just Jay, but it's Henk. He's the moderator, and Hans van der Weinsenburg, Monika van Farnbrook, and Gerard Kouwmeijer. And I would like to also introduce to you Hans Johaus, Honaus, Jan Honaus. Maybe I've been here so long and now getting mixed up in the names. Jan, would you stand up for a minute? Not only is he a representative of Penn, but he also knows something about Dutch publishing. So if you'd like to ask questions of him, please come on. Enjoy yourselves. And before I turn it over to Mr. Bernhardt, I would like to tell you that on Thursday uh, you will also be able to come, I hope, and uh, hear them read some things being acted. And afterwards, it is at the Greenwich House, so there will be a cheese and wine party. Please come, and if you can't, uh, tell your friends or bring your friends. Have a good time. Ladies and gentlemen, partly of Part of the audience probably will be Dutch. It's my experience a couple of years ago when I did a poetry reading in Chicago and all the Dutch poets stumbled through their peculiar pronunciations of English. Uh, it, it only was clear after the reading that uh, there was one American. And uh, he... Um, He, he was thinking that he went to a Donald Duck festival. <laughs> he was trapped because it was in a cinema, and he was trapped in the wrong cinema where this reading was going on. I don't hope this evening will have the same tragic undertone. Um, although there is a, uh, a paper lying there on your chairs in which... Uh, all our credentials are described. Um, I think still it's a good idea to just introduce to you the people that are sitting behind the table 
just to sketch in a few words, in their own words, uh, who they are and what they are doing. So, um, from your left, uh, I'll first give the word to Gerard Jan Reinders. I'm the artistic director of Toneel Group Amsterdam, which is a theater group Amsterdam, which is the biggest subsidized theater company uh, of the Netherlands. I work there mainly as a director. Every now and then I also work there as an actor. And I'm here in this place as a playwright. Suzanne? Hans. My name is Hans from the Weisenberg. I'm a poet and a writer for children books. My name is Monica van Vahen. I'm a full-time writer. I'm a novelist. And I'm also the president of the Belgian film Dutch Speaking because I'm the only one who is in Flanders. Gerrit. I am uh, Gerrit Kouwena. I'm a poet. I live in Amsterdam. And uh, I, uh, in former years, uh, I was a member of a group of young poets, when I was not young too, uh, in the 50s. And this was the group of the 50s. And you know maybe that uh, a little book of the poems in translation uh, a few years uh, ago in, uh, in the States was published. Okay, after this short introduction, um uh, first, I don't want to go particularly deep into history, but um, you know, uh, any time when Dutch people come to New York, um, <laughs> they start talking about uh, the past, uh, the foundation of, uh, of this uh, city. And that's uh, exactly, I'm, I'm, I'm a real Dutchman, so I will, uh, I will start with the same uh, short historical overview and um, reminding you that New York was um, bought in 1624 for $24 from the Indians by a Dutchman called Peter Minuit. If you translate it from the French into English, it means Peter Knight. And it was certainly a very dark night, I think, for the Indians. But that's how New Amsterdam was founded. And if you go, it's a, lo it's a rather long period from 1624 until now. And uh, the activities of the Dutch in this continent left their traces in the, um, in, the, in the American and English dictionary. And I, of course, uh, I knew certain of these expressions, but I was amazed at, um, 
a great number of them, and I, I just want to name them. I, I don't have to translate them for the American audience. Sometimes I will do translate it into Dutch for the Dutch uh, people, right? because they, they're not always uh, aware of uh, what the American expressions mean. Um, the Dutch act, I mean, that's to commit suicide. I mean, that's not what we are going to do tonight, but... <laughs> Uh, then you have Dutch auction, then you have Dutch bargain, where all the uh, benefits of a transaction go to one party. Uh, a, a Dutch bookie. Then we have Dutch cap, which is very interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, in Dutch, uh, that's a empresarium, a Dutch cap. <laughs> Beautiful, I think. Dutch comfort. Schrale Troost, Dutch Courage, that's, that's one that's relatively known, Jenevermoed, Dutch Disease, that's already lost in the, in the last edition of the Webster because Hollandiitis, that means that we were all very much against nuclear uh, armament, but that's a word from the 70s. Then we have Dutch Doll, we have Dutch Foil, then we have a wonderful one, although it's a little obscene, called Dutch fuck, which means lighting one cigarette to the other. <laughs> A beautiful expression, I think. Then we have Dutch gold, Dutch leaf, Dutch street, everybody, even a Dutchman knows what that means. <laughs> A Dutch uncle, somebody who is criticizing everybody all the time. A Dutch wife. To be in Dutch, well, then you are really in trouble. And um, when I started um, looking through dictionaries, I found in the pocket dictionary of American slang, I found this about Dutch. Uh, slang words such as Dutch act, Dutch street, and Dutch uncle all have some basic connotation of disaster, dislike, and cheapness, indicating that there may have been a common root. That's very subtle formulated, I think. And I, I won't go into that <laughs> any deeper. Um, so you can see that um, the Dutch left an, uh, a certain impression um, on, on the dictionary in the United States and on the, on the people who were meeting Dutch people. And of course, these were not in the first place writers and artists they met. The, they were businessmen. And, and the way they, they uh, went about their business is, uh, I want to, uh, to cite a, a short uh, anecdote from uh, a book that's rather famous over here, written by Diedrich Nickerbocker, uh, published in 1809, called A History of New York. Uh, in which he describes uh, the exploits of the Dutch explorers and governors and their subjects. Um, this, and then he gives a description of just one of the Dutch methods of doing business with the local Indians that were still living here in Manhattan. Um, uh, Nickerbocker writes them, the Dutch were scrupulously honest in their dealings and purchased by weight establishing it as an invariable table of avoirdupois, that the hand of a Dutchman weighed one pound, 
and his food two pounds. <laughs> it is true the simple Indians were often puzzled by the great disproportion between bulk and weight. <laughs> For let them place a bundle of furs, never so large in one scale, and a Dutchman put his hand or foot in the other, the bundle was sure to kick the beam. So that was the way our forefathers went about in this part of the world. Um, but of course there is more to the Dutch than just this rather negative picture. Um, Holland is a small country and to most Americans it's not very clear actually where it's located. I mean, uh, in my life I met a lot of American jazz musicians and they uh, always ask me how life is going on in Copenhagen. <laughs> so this is a very, uh, and I can understand it when you come from such a great continent as the United States, it is very, very difficult to understand that you land at Schiphol Airport and you hear the people talking Dutch and you take a train and two hours later they are talking German and three hours later they are talking another language called Danish. I mean, that's, that's I can understand that you get mixed up by that. Um, but that doesn't mean that all these um, countries, small as they are, have their own identity and I think the Dutch more than the the Danish and the Germans, uh, have always been uh, a people that really had to go out of their country, not because it was flooded, flooded all the time, although many people outside Holland think that. Uh, there were so many people living in such a small country that they really had to move out to earn some money, and that's the way they, uh, uh, they came into this uh, dictionary by trading with all people in the world. And this has left an impression, I think, also on Dutch culture, which on the one hand has certain local characteristics, and I think we will go into that later, but it has also been very internationally oriented. Um, in Holland, people from other nations with other cultural interests, people that were persecuted for their intellectual ideas were always welcome to come to Holland. In the first place, because the Dutch understood that um, they had to deal with greater nations, with other cultures in order to survive. On the other hand, of course, because there was always a chance of earning some money. Um, we should, in the, at the beginning of this talk, um, make a difference in the approach when we talk about Dutch culture, because, uh, and especially when we talk about literature, because um, some of the people here uh, don't come from the Netherlands, but from Belgium, Flanders. And we all speak the same language, Dutch, but there is, I think, uh, a rather big difference in the way the people actually uh, go about with the language. I mean, in the, in the, we use the same dictionary, we have the same official language, 
but still there are great differences. And without going into the history of both countries that would take us too far, um, I think that you can say that Dutch culture is, has a very strong uh, background in the religious Calvinistic tradition and that the, uh, the southern uh, part, no, I shouldn't say the southern part of Holland. My God, what a mistake. I mean, <laughs> sorry, I mean Belgium. Um, the background of the Flemish culture is more located, I think, in the um, in Catholic religion. And um, I think, for instance, uh, to make uh, uh, if you look at the at the arts. Uh, 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 an art movement from the 20s like the style with uh, uh, painters like Piet Mondrian and Theo van Doesburg is typically Dutch and with a strong Calvinistic tinge on, in it and while a painter like Rubens for instance could never have been I think uh, somebody from the northern part of the Netherlands uh, but maybe this is the moment to ask somebody who really lives uh, in in Belgium to comment on this and to make she's a writer Monica and uh, she uses the, the same language as, as we do but still there are uh, big differences I, f I feel it and it is maybe interesting for people to know something more about these differences Can I? yeah sure thank you Flanders is the Dutch speaking part of a federal state in the Kingdom of Belgium. Until the 16th century, Flanders was the governmental and administrative center of the Low Countries. An 80 years religious war divided the Low Countries into North and South, Protestant and Catholic. A large part of the intelligentsia of the culture and money fled from the South, Flanders, to the north, to the Netherlands, which flourished in the 17th century, its golden age. The south, however, Flanders, was impoverished and occupied successively by the Spaniards, the Austrians, and the French. <coughs> Mainly after the foundation of the Belgian state, 1830-1838, whose backbone and structure were Francophone, Dutch was treated and suppressed. The judiciary and administration were Frenchified. The bourgeoisie and upper classes spoke French. The court language was French. And the Catholic Church feared that Dutch and renewed ties with the North would bring back Protestantism and its Bible. When my father was at secondary school, for example, it was forbidden to speak Dutch during break time. Flemish was the vernacular, a mixture of dialects that were considered inferior, yet had an indisputable dynamism and expressivity. Thanks to those dialects, the basis of Dutch was preserved. 
proper Dutch held its own and became the language of Flanders again under the impulse of the Dutch rule, 1815-1830, a period during which Belgium was annexed to the north, to the Netherlands, and during which Dutch was reintroduced in our primary schools. Most important, however, is the fact that the language was also a weapon in a social battle. While the Netherlands managed to remain neutral during World War I, Flanders was largely occupied by the Germans, and for four years, people fought in the trenches. Since the Flemish soldiers did not understand the language of their officers, French, they died en masse. A few years after the Great War, the first language laws were passed. Today, Dutch has achieved a status similar to that of French and is spoken by the majority of the population. Writers have played an important part in this evolution, which start with the 13th century beast epic van den Vos Reinaarde, Reinaard the Fox, which opens with the following lines. Willem took it much to heart that one adventure of Reinhard in Dutch remained as yet untold. For that legend, he made a search and began to tell it in Dutch, after the French in which it was made. Another famous classic is Charles de Coster's Tel Allenspiegel, that recounts the freedom fight from the Spaniards through the antics of its hero and was originally written in French. Nobel Prize winner Maurice Maeterlinck, who came from my hometown, Ghent, in East Flanders, also wrote in French. It is mainly in the 19th and the first half of the 20th century that writers helped stimulate the emancipation of the people by reconquering and creatively using their language. Two schools are involved in this, writers who are proud of their Flemish roots and go back to rustic stories and tragedies, and others who explore the world from within their own identity. The former group sticks to those roots and become rather insular, such as priest-poet Guido Geselle, who tried to invent written Flemish from within his specific Catholic Flemish background. The latter group, with writers such as Cyril Buysen, who is sometimes exaggeratingly called Flemish Zola, tries to lodge onto the Netherlands again and write social and psychological dramas, such as his play Het Gezin van Pamel, The Van Pamel Family, which forever ruined all writers' reputation with my family. Although diametrically opposed to each other, the above writers all committed themselves somehow. Whether pro or anti-religion, socially or politically committed, their very language oozes this commitment. Today, this can still be said of modern writers such as Louis Palbon and Hugo Claus. Flanders is situated between Amsterdam and Paris. It is a border and transit area. 
Alongside this, the linguistic border runs an invisible border between the north and the south. And there is the daily confrontation with the French-speaking part of Belgium to boot. For over 150 years, the Belgians have been fighting each other, more or less peacefully, through language. <coughs> Alongside the above commitment and linguistic feeling, the southern, or shall I say French influence, has been one of the elements giving Flemish literature its typical identity within Dutch literature. Art does not have a creed, but the deepest secret of music is the secret of identity, Thomas Mann wrote. The versatility or diversity of Dutch language literature is rooted in our history and is a definite bonus in my opinion. I specifically choose a music quotation now that the difference between the Netherlands and Flanders has become one of tonality, sound and rhythm. Works by Dutch and Flemish writers are read in the Netherlands as well as in Flanders. There is a cross-fertilization and politically too, or on a subsidizing level, a fairer and more proportional treatment seems on its way. Amsterdam is two and a half hour train journey away from Brussels and vice versa. Brussels is not just the bilingual capital of Belgium, it is also a capital for Europe. Maybe that's, what I, that's why I say vive la différence and think we should think on a much larger scale. Europe is a patchwork quilt each patch of which shall be allowed to keep its own identity without losing its links with the patches around it. Either we learn how to live with our differences or they will be our downfall. Of old, female authors have played an important part in Flemish and by extension in Dutch literature. Hadewig, Middle Ages, Anna Beins, 16th century, Belle van Zuilen, 18th century, Carrie van Brugge, Hella Hase, and Christine Daan, 20th century, are but a few of the names scattered across the centuries. Writers who worked both as literary creatures and women. Of course, they and their work have had to face the usual judgments and prejudices, both about their person and writings. But things could have been worse, and over the years, theirs has been a massive contribution. Even today, our women writers belong to the, belong to the best among their peers. I didn't really want to quote our women writers separately. They have their own, but also a general place in Dutch language literature. But maybe it isn't such a bad idea, after all, to conclude with women writers, for they have suffered far less from artificial frontiers separating countries or idiomatic usages. Their work has always been idiomatic or different, yet universal by the same token. Thank you. Thank you. Um, 
Gerrit Kouwenaar. Uh, he is, uh, like you said before, he is he's part of a group that uh, that is no group any longer, and they were called the Vijftigers. Uh, most of them are uh, much older than 50 years now, and. Uh, but they started, um, they started a, some sort of a revolution directly after the Second World War uh, when Dutch poetry um, was a, a poetry founded uh, uh, in, in the national poetic tradition, more or less. There were some exceptions. One of them is sitting in the audience, a Dutch poet who has been living here for a long time already in Brooklyn and even now writing his poetry in English. Uh, and he was already, I think, uh, during the war or sh shortly after writing uh, poems that were uh, rather un-Dutch, I should say, uh, with uh, strange surrealistic images. And uh, in the same time, uh, Gerrit Kouwenaar and a number of uh, other poets were, for the first time, I think, uh, really internationalizing uh, Dutch poetry, looking across the border and trying to incorporate uh, the poetry from other uh, uh, countries like French surrealism, uh, Dadaism, etc. Uh, what I, I'm interested because, uh, and this is not just a joke, I, I, never, uh, uh, I never asked this uh, to Gerrit Kouwenaar, uh, was there uh, an influence of the American poetry of the 20s of the 20s and the 30s, people like, uh, for instance, uh, Wallace Stevens, uh, Marianne Moore, William Carlos Williams. Uh, did you did you read that poetry and had it an, an influence on on your own poetry at that time? Uh, I don't think at that time. I think there was no influence of of, of the states, uh, English poetry, uh, French, but uh, later on, we we we. we uh, discovered uh, the, the, the Wallace Stevens, uh, uh, Williams, uh, uh, but that was all, yeah, that was already the 60s. Because yeah, yeah. just after the war, there were no books. There were no books there available. No books and there was no, no influence possible. And um, because this is for the audience maybe interesting to know, even if you, if you didn't, uh, didn't read uh, American poetry directly after the war, what was your impression when you start started reading it, was it a poetry that was in some way connected uh, to your own idea of what, how a, a, a poem should, should look, or was it uh, uh, some sort of an exotic poetic language that you had no feeling with? The American... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, mean, the American. No, I, I think uh, uh, the first influence came, as I said, from, from, from French and, and English. That was something new. And then afterwards, we, we found other things, we discovered other things. And then it's about learning from it, but, but recognizing something. Mm -hmm. yeah. He, uh, Stevens, for example, he did what, he had already done what we want to do. And it was a recognizing of, of, of things, but not a complete new world no, anymore. No, no. No. And, and, and what about uh, uh, Hans? You, you come from more or less the same generation as I come from. Mm -hmm. uh, was American poetry for you uh, something that um, was important, or was it not something that you read? Or? 
No, well, uh, the most important uh, poetry I read when I was young was the generation of, of Gerrit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it should, I mean, <laughs> don't misinterpret me. I mean, I don't mean to say that we all should, as Dutch poets, should only read American poetry. By God, I'm very glad, for instance, that we didn't have such a disastrous poet as uh, Walt Whitman in Dutch literature. I mean, I, I really think he was, even when he was very necessary for American poetry and to get rid of the academism of, of English-influenced poetry in the 19th century, I still think that um, this just uh, making out of a, a, a prolific journalist one of the greatest poets, I think, that has been a disaster still working through in the uh, in American beat poetry from the 50s. And, and uh, when I read American poetry nowadays, I mean, when I read anthologies and so, the one thing that irritates me all the time is the enormous formlessness of this poetry, this, this babbling, this, this talk, talkative aspect of American, much of the American poetry that's written nowadays. And I think that... Um, uh, Dutch poetry has a, a stronger sense of form than the American poetry that's written nowadays. So I think the, the Dutch poets are, uh, are wise not only to look to their American colleagues, of course. And uh, it was not a suggestion that I wanted to make, but I, I was just curious um, if uh, American culture uh, had an influence on you both as poets, yeah. or not. Yeah, I, I have French. something to more say. More the to French for yeah. you. Le was at that time uh, mm -hmm. an anthology, which you read, you had to read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and in, 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 in the years just after the war, when we started, America was a, was a far country. Far, far. Yeah, country. yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody, nobody. And became an influence directly from, from, from England, from, yeah. from France. Germany also, huh? from mm -hmm. the 30s. I think there was more influence jazz uh, 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 that came directly. Yeah, yeah, the, the jazz music. And, and yeah. yeah, but no, but it was it was it was for years, five, six, seven years. Then there came the American poets to uh, on the market, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could you could buy the you yes, could buy the books buy and uh, anthologies and so on. No articles in the in, in the papers about it. It's, I think you can say uh, American literature didn't exist for Europe in that time. No, no. That came after the fifties. Let's let's forget the prose, of course. It's different. Yeah, American prose was, of course, uh, more well known than poetry, like it's still today, of course. <laughs> <laughs> But just for a, for a, for a change, let's um, um, let's go to the other side of the table. People who are directing for the stage, who are and who are writing uh, mm -hmm. um, plays. Uh, has there been uh, for you here a, a connection with the American drama, or did you develop uh, a thing quite on your own, or were you looking at quite another direction? Um, oh no, I strongly influenced by American drama, uh, and especially by the, the works I saw in, in Europe of Robert Wilson, and even more by the work of the Wooster Group, Habits by uh, Elizabeth Holmes. 
which I saw already in 78 in, in Baltimore, in 74, I mean, later I saw them in Amsterdam, and I even invited them to do a co-production in Eindhoven, where I was in the company Globe, and they came over and we uh, made this production, North Atlantic, based on the American classic, South Pacific. Yeah, yeah. And since then, uh, well, that was for me a very uh, important uh, uh, experience. Yeah. Their way of working and how they develop strange plays and strange uh, productions out of uh, basically classic American themes. Mm-hmm. And my last production, I tried to, well, I did in my own way, but I wanted to do the same what they always do, starting from a classical Dutch play, which doesn't, almost doesn't exist, and turn it into something new and, and valid for today. And so I thought, of what is a, a Dutch classic? Well, we have a Dutch classic, which is the story of Anne Frank. Mm-hmm. I mean... It's a world-famous story. Why? Not because, well, of course, because of her diary, but mainly because of uh, a not-so-very-good Broadway theater play and an even worse Hollywood movie. And I used all those things to make a new statement, starting from the history of Anne Frank, about Holland's today and how we handle foreigners, minorities, these days. Yeah, yeah. So you make, you make some sort of a statement uh, about Dutch, uh, the Dutch attitude towards minorities and the whole development of, of Holland into a multiracial society, yeah. and you compare it to the, um, uh, the position of, uh, of well, the Jews in, in, in the 40s. Well, what's, what's interesting about it, as me and, and Frank, uh, story is that it, she became a symbol for our uh, brave attitude against the Germans in the mm-hmm. war, which is not totally true. I mean, when you want to uh, take it uh, in a nationalistic way, you have to realize that Anne Frank herself and her family, they were Germans. Mipris, the woman who helped her most, she was from Austria, and the people who betrayed her and delivered her to the Germans, they were, they were Dutch. <laughs> and that's what uh, not many people even want to realize in Holland. Mm-hmm. And, well, I thought it would be maybe useful to, to have it about that on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Suzanne, uh, you write and, and direct, um, as I understand, more or less, um, or you started out as, as a writer for, for young people, youth theater. And maybe it would be interesting to, I don't know anything about, of course there is um, uh, theater for young people here too, but I, I don't know anything about it. Um, and I had a feeling that this particular form or of, of, of theater making, although it's not particularly well articulated to say it's a form, it's, a, it's a, an approach to the theater that um, 
when I, I saw a place for, for children in the 60s, it was, you could, it was very clear to me that these were written by adults that were more or less looking down to children. And this whole thing developed into a completely new approach. And, and that's quite successful in Holland at the moment, I think. Maybe you could comment a little on that. I wrote something down. I think. Oh, you, you're a writer, so you have to. You can write something down now and then, of course. <laughs> and so, to your question, if I feel uh, influenced by American literature or American playwright, I can be rather clear that I think it's not the case. Um, I've been very much influenced by. Uh, English writers, British writers, Ezra, Pinter, and Beckett. But American literature is um, far more out of my personal sight than, for example, uh, German literature or the two English, uh, British writers I mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, well, I'd like to uh, give a little bit of insight in um, the fact that I'm here, which, which might be very um, extraordinary because I'm, a, first of all, a playwright and not a, a prose writer. And then um, for youth theatre, which um, might be because in Holland, in fact, um, youth theatre has um, developed into a rather uh, special autonom autonomous. Um, autonomous form of theatre. And I would like to explain a little bit about that. Um, well, before trying to describe what our, I mean, the people in Holland who work in youth theatre and my work in that children's theatre aims at, I first have to eliminate some associations which might trouble the rest of this um, discussion. Um, children's theatre in Holland, the part that's going to be discussed here or that's going to be in my um, statement, has got nothing to do, neither with clowns, fairy tales, or Peter Pan, or the Wizard of Oz, or anything of the kind. And it has, has got nothing to do with um, educational, or didactic, or even political premises, as we suppose when we talk about children's theatre. It has become an autonomous, and I may say adult form of art, that has developed from the early 70s to the form that it has got now in Holland, and that um, takes, at the moment, a leading position in the uh, children's theatre in, in Europe. Um, well, looking back on this development, you can very shortly uh, take some moments. Uh, the early 70s, when <coughs> under the influence of the anti uh, anti-authoritarian uh, movement, um, theater makers threw away all the tr traditional children's theater which existed at that moment in sense of amusement and fairy tales. And we started as a political children's theater in which children uh, were defined as equal members of society and therefore should be engaged in social questions and discussions. So theater makers went into the schools and discussed social items with children. 
that developed into a more individual and personal uh, approach of children's reality and emotional content, uh, in which also uh, children were uh, invited to play with their actors in several forms of, um, of uh, theater with children, not only for children. And that developed again towards a, a very broad and wide area of experiments in form and text and visual theater, dance theater, musical theater, in which um, specialized playwrights, before we had a more collective uh, way of working, everybody was doing everything, acting, writing, playing, um, in which um, playwrights and uh, highly professional actors and directors and musicians um, over and over again renewed um, the artistic um, aims and made performances that challenged borders of what could be offered to children in theatre. That was always the question, what can you do for children? What are children able to receive? Um, well, I think Dutch youth theatre, in its actual uh, diversity, can be said to be based on a few rather very simple premises. First of all, that children are not stupid. That children basically are not different from other people. That they've got the same emotions and receptions as adults, although these emotions and receptions are experienced in a different context, and that is that children are in an exploring and um, gathering phase of their life, receiving, not adding up their experience to other experiences they've already had, because they're able to look new. And the fact that their lives are new makes them a very actual audience, a very uh, here-at-the-moment audience in theatre. They are not bothered by expectations or rejections towards <coughs> what they see in theatre. Um, they're too small or too ignorant or not capable of handling questions like death or war or anything that's um, well, our premise to watch children is not to amuse them, not to pass their time or to keep them off the street. We've got television for that. The challenge, <laughs> the challenge for artists in youth theatre is that you can offer children experiences, all kinds of experiences, visual, emotional, verbal, textual, musical, movement which are new to them and which children are very willing to receive. And one, once this is being stated, there is a large area opened for artistic experiment. And then there are no restrictions any, anywhere for what's, what is or is not possible to offer children as a theater experience, I think. Well, in Holland, often last years, the discussions have been around that question. The surprise of adults, an adult audience that come to see a youth play, 
that what they saw in a youth theater play also was apt for children at all. I mean, they say, that's not for children. You should not confront children with things like that. It's too difficult. It's too um, artistic, maybe. Mostly they stated that you shouldn't challenge children that far in either form or content. The underlying question of this surprise, as I see it, mostly was that they think if I, as an adult, can experience the play without having to lower my reception to a children's point of view, to a children's level, how is it possible that children also can receive the same play in the same way as I, as an adult, do? Well, the experience is they can. Children can. They can as they can watch a Picasso painting or a Matisse or a Van Gogh without the background of intellectual understanding, just looking and taking the thing for what it is and receiving it in another way than an intellectual way. And I think as theater is first of all a form of art that appeals to, to sensual receiving, to looking, listening, feeling, experiencing. I think therefore that, in my opinion, youth theater in Holland is the place where you can experience theater in its most pure and essential form, because the artists in theater have found that opening in children's theater to experiment, uh, to experiment with theater. Well, some information in Holland about nine youth theater groups have got a, a, st a structural state subvention. That's to say they can work with um, state money for the next four years. It's a new structure that uh, lately have been built up. Another about five or ten groups work on year, year, uh, yearly incidental uh, subvention. Some of those groups only play in regular theaters. Others only perform in school classes and gyms. Uh, gyms, it's called. The, the yeah, yeah, that's okay. Um, that, of course, means a very big difference in artistic forms that they have developed. Um, and in the last five years, a rather large uh, repertorium of um, children's plays have been developed by five to ten youth playwrights in Holland. And those plays vary from adaptations of classical um, pieces, Greek, uh, Shakespeare uh, plays have been um, adapted uh, for children's audience, um, absurd drama, but also realistic um, plays, folk uh, stories, uh, history mm -hmm. stories, or um, uh, new drama on issues as war, death, as I told. In fact, the whole range of what you can find in adult theater, <laughs> all the parts of um, plays, are to be found in, uh, in the plays which are developed for children lately. Well, and these plays are, uh, are played all over Europe in other countries because the way we, um, we have developed this repertorium is not yet um, known in other countries, so they are very willing 
to take these plays and try them again for other audiences. So far. Okay, thank you. Um, up till now we have been talking about um, the attitude of Dutch artists towards American culture. Let's turn the whole thing around now and uh, put it in another way. Um, what, uh, that's a question I want to ask all of you to give just uh, a comment on that. Um, is there something for in your own feeling that is, um, or maybe just in your own work, of course, uh, but is there something that you could call uh, a specific Dutch art, specific Dutch poetry, and uh, what what are the specifics uh, of of Dutch art, if if there is any? Uh, it's also possible that you that you come to the conclusion, of course, that uh, we have come to a world where art is turning more and more international, and where you cannot longer speak about these local differences as we did 30, 40 <coughs> years ago. So who wants to, yeah, Hans, uh, go ahead. Um, I can, I wrote something down on this theme uh, about, about local and the universe, the universal, uh, because it was a theme you mentioned, mm -hmm. the local is the universal of Carlos Williams, William Carlos Williams, and I, well, you cannot doubt about that. I first I wanted to say that I wrote a few lines about Flemish literature and Flanders, but it's covered enough, I think. So uh, I start uh, with the following: the capital of the Kingdom of the Netherlands, and you mentioned perhaps that I don't talk about Holland, but about the Netherlands, is Amsterdam. The greater part of our important writers are living in Amsterdam, and if you are not living there, you are regarded as a local, because Amsterdam is not only the capital of the Netherlands, but also from the world. What am I saying? Of the universe. And if you don't believe me, ask it a real Amsterdammer, not necessarily a writer. A taxi driver will do. But also the most and the best of our publishing houses have their offices in Amsterdam, just as our dailies and weeklies. Amsterdam is really the navel of the world. I was born in a small and horrible industrial place in the south of the kingdom of the Netherlands, and it looked like if I had to stay there the rest of my life. But I was still very young. I discovered that my sweet granddad uh, a pigeon fancier who was always drunk was born and bred in the medieval city of Ghent and I understood that the city of Ghent was somewhere in another country about 100 kilometers away but the people spoke their Dutch why could I otherwise understand my granddad and sometimes when he was very drunk he spoke to me in a language which I could not understand it seemed to be French. At the age of 12, I left for Ghent with my own passport in my pocket. I didn't feel myself anymore a local, but as a real citizen of the world. In Ghent, in the Kingdom of Belgium, I saw the magnificent triptych God's Lamp of the painter Jan van Eyck, and since then I knew that the world 
or if you prefer universe, was my place. When I am in New York, I always have to visit the MoMA. I feel at home in this city when I have seen, even for a short while, Mondrian's Boogie Woogies. For me, it is something like a visit to the Vatican when he's in Rome. A universal experience on a local level or a local experience on a universal level. At least three times a year, I visit the village of Domburg, located at the North Seaside in Holland, the Netherlands. In the beginning of this century, the painter Mondrian stayed there for quite some time. His analytic drawings and paintings, which he made of a small Protestant church, it still exists, was the beginning of a development which brought him, at the end of his life, to his boogie woogies. And on the day Jimi Hendrix died, I met in Cologne for the first time the German writer Heinrich Böll. We became friends. I admired him as a writer, and I had read a lot of his books at my young age from that time. He opened for me a world which I recognized and that I couldn't find in my own, in, other, in our own literature in Holland. Through his books and some long talks, I discovered something very essential. Literature of high quality is a strange combination of the local and the universal. And how that is possible is due to the talent of that stupid writer or poet. And please, don't forget to pray, to pray for the writers and poets in their self-chosen jails, full of local silence under the umbrella of the universe. And then I have a small postscriptum. I'm living in the utmost southern part of Holland, called Maastricht. Since Maastricht became Maastricht, that means known all over the world, we in Maastricht believe that our town is now the center of the universe. Thank you. <laughs> Um, I'd like to uh, to ask Monica if if um, uh, more or less the same question. If you think that there are, um, you're a novelist. Um, are there, in in your opinion, specific ca characteristics for the um, for the novels written in Dutch? And and you may make a division because I think there is between the, the novels written in, in the Netherlands and, and, and the novels written in Belgium? It is not a simple question. No, no, no. <laughs> we have had the simple questions now. We, we go I'll deeper and deeper. I'll, I'll try. I'll try. Um, I think uh, that the, the Dutch literature, and I mean for the to begin with, the literature of the North has a strong influence from the Anglo-Saxon uh, 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 literature, while, for instance, the literature of the South of the Netherlands, because Hans said um, that the capital uh, was Amsterdam, and he said the Netherlands, plural, but the real capital of the Netherlands is, of course, Mechelen in Flanders. <laughs> and um, do we have a map here? <laughs> <laughs> it's between Antwerp and Brussels. And uh, I think that the influence of the French literature and the idea of the intellectual 
that you have in the French literature has also his influence in the Flemish uh, or southern part literature mm -hmm. of the Netherlands. And it's a question of engagement also uh, with the local situation that I think is something that makes uh, Flemish liter literature different from the Dutch who has central themes. Uh, the typical Dutch novel as uh, The Evenings van uh, Gerard van het uh, Reven um, is a play into the house. It's nearly theater. And mm -hmm. it's very located, but it's also very universal because you have a family in a house and they speak a certain language and there are uh, some uh, typical things, but you can transport it to, to New York and I think it will work. Uh, for an, a book as uh, The Chapel Road from uh, Louis Paul Bon, for instance, that's totally different. It's rooted into the country and it, it, it's a, a way of engagement to that uh, country and you can see it also in the language. And I think that's maybe something that's typical for, if you want to call it like that, Flemish literature. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why Flemish literature has its own identity or entity in uh, Dutch literature still these days. Mm -hmm. Try. Well, I've, I've, I've always the feeling that um, that um, uh, Flemish novels deal more um, with um, with ideas, not always, of course, but uh, there are, for instance, you call a, a very important uh, uh, Flemish author, Louis Paul Bon, who uh, who, who uh, wrote about uh, the, the the rise of socialism at the beginning of the 20th century? He wrote some very moving books about that, and uh, it's not so easy to find an equivalent of that in 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 uh, in Dutch prose. I mean, I I have the feeling that Dutch prose is not the strongest point of Dutch prose is um, is uh, the novel of ideas. Um, uh, f when I look at it myself and I compare it with American literature, I think that Dutch literature has more to do with the world of, for instance, uh, Raymond Carver than, for instance, with uh, a novelist like uh, Sol Bellow uh, uh, writing about ideas, trying to comment in a, in a rather specific and direct and sometimes even political way on... Uh, things that that are going on in in the world. Uh, Dutch literature is, um, I think, it's deeply founded in realism and not the sort of of easy realism that's just a picturing of reality, but the sort the same sort of realism that makes uh, painters like Vermeer, uh, uh, Saradam, and other 17th century painters still. Uh, universal and up-to-date and interesting today uh, because there is something more into this there is an enormous uh, interest in in the small and minute details of life and, and uh, when the artist is, is a small artist uh, he, he, uh, he, he cannot he, he doesn't come any further than just realism but when he when he really has the power to do something with that, he overcomes this and it becomes something that is universal, although the, the roots are very local. And I think the, much of Dutch, the worth of Dutch literature is just in this, 
in this enormous interest uh, in, in, uh, in the local and in minute details of, of life, I think. Uh, and now for the, the theater. Um, do you have, Geert, an idea that there is something that you would call Dutch theater, and, and what are the sp specific qualities of that? Well, I think you, you could say that that theater, yeah, maybe Dutch culture in general, is in a way very Tennessee Williams-like, in a sense that it always depended, and I hope I can't write on the kindness of strangers. I have three examples. Uh, First, in the 70s and in the 80s, Dutch theater, or Holland, was known in the international avant-garde theater world, very known. That was because of the Mikri Theater, a unique theater subsidized by the government, where almost all the most important avant-garde theater groups from all over the world came and performed. So, how was Dutch theater known internationally? because non-Dutch groups could perform there. And from all over the world, people came to watch those groups and to uh, invite them to the, uh, several festivals, different festivals. So it was not because of the Dutch theater, but it was because of a Dutch theater building that Holland was known within the theater world. Another example, 10 years ago, I uh, happened to meet Francis Ford Coppola's brother, who then was and maybe still is head of the drama department in Berkeley. And we talked about uh, Dutch, European, and American theater. And I asked him what he thought of Robert Wilson, who then was already very well known in Holland. He had never heard of him. <laughs> then I asked him what he thought of the Hooster Group, who also had already performed in Amsterdam in Mickery Theater. He had never heard of him. Of, of, of the, them. So in Holland, uh, we were very much informed what was happening all over the world uh, in theater, and we knew even better what was happening in, in New York uh, or in, in the States than the head of the drum department in Berlin, which I found remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> and a to say the least. And a third example is Toneel uh, Amsterdam. Uh, it gets about $4.4 million dollars, uh, subsidy every year, but we do a lot of things. Uh, we make 12 productions at least every year, and we give more than 300 performances all over the country. We do, for example, the classics, but there are no Dutch classics, maybe two. So we do Euripides, uh, Shakespeare, uh, Molière, uh, Racine, von Kleist, Hebel, Ibsen, then we also do a new modern plays from playwrights from America, Scandinavia, Germany, France, England, Austria. And that's considered very normal within Dutch theater. What is considered less normal is that we really try, it's even considered to be daring and risky, to develop new, originally Dutch plays. And we Gradually, uh, gradually it, it, we succeed in that. But that's a very new thing to happen in Dutch theater, that we try at least every season to, to play two new Dutch 
place. And, uh, but I think when you, what is maybe uh, essential in Dutch theatre that is this international orientation, which has to do with our history, as you uh, mm -hmm. already explained. Uh, the, the, and it is a, has a very positive side. The negative side might be that especially Dutch people are inclined to think that there is not something as Dutch theatre or Dutch culture. And I think that uh, right that or uh, just that internationalism is what makes it so Dutch. Yeah, yeah. I hope. I'm uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, uh, we uh, we are the most <laughs> internationally oriented uh, people in the whole world, even though we are very a small country. Well, maybe th there is some truth in that. Although I don't think that, um, I, and I don't hope that um, um, European countries and, and all the countries will, will turn into some sort of an international soup where uh, wherever you go it's like fashion. You buy the same trousers and the same shoes wherever you go. And I don't think that um, that will happen. And we see some of the tragic consequences now in Europe where everybody is groping with... Uh, with national identities and even killing each other for that. So th this whole uh, uh, national side of culture is still very much alive, I think. But I just wanted, um, I think we have about 10 minutes left, uh, then I, I want to give you the floor if there are any questions uh, after this short uh, introduction to a, a lot of aspects of Dutch culture. I feel, in a way, I, I feel a little uncomfortable with with, the, with this evening, and I can tell you why. Because all the people that are sitting here, they are not critics, they are not essayists, they are artists, they are making their own work, and that's uh, the only thing that they really represent and want to represent. And, uh, and that's why uh, why I think it's, it's, it's even more important that you uh, that you come and listen to us in the follow-up of this evening uh, in two days. Because then I think we feel more at home when we are reading our own words instead of, of, of trying to sketch in, in, in uh, uh, one hour uh, a cultural situation that's very complicated and that goes back in a tradition of more than five or six hundred years. That's impossible to do. Anyhow, we try. There is one thing that maybe after uh, what Gerard Jan uh, told about uh, the Mikri Theater, which was so uh, important uh, for uh, groups from the United States, England, and all over the world who came there uh, to perform their plays that they were more known in the Netherlands than uh, in their own countries. and. Part of this, uh, Gerard Jan said that already, is because there is, there is a particular attitude of the Dutch government again, uh, towards the arts, um, which is, uh, I think, rather different from the American system. In, uh, as far as I know, in the United States, people have really to struggle to, um, to survive as artists. I think I've, I've met many more actors in restaurants as waiters than on the stage. 
And uh, the, the American phil philosophy for the arts is more or less that if you are a great talent, you will survive. And um, in a way, that's true. But if you look at the career of a lot of American artists, and I talk about actors and I talk about musicians, then you see it's a very tragic story of struggling to just keep alive, and it's an enormous waste of time. I mean, eventually you come to the top. If you're good, you come to the top. Of course, that's true. But the, the way you come there takes you through all kinds of odd jobs just to earn a living, and it's just a waste of talent and a waste of time. And this is, I think, that the Dutch... Um, uh, the Dutch have, um, I don't think that the Dutch government or Dutch politicians particularly like art, but they more or less feel an obligation to pay a certain amount of money uh, so that um, theater makers, writers, and artists can live. We have a, uh, a fund for writers, we have a fund for composers. Uh, Suzanne told about uh, that there are uh, theater groups who get subsidies so that they can work with some some sort of continuity for a, a four or five year period. And although uh, on the one hand, if you if you look critically at this system, you can say that uh, money is also going to uh, talents that are less than average, maybe, um, but. It also helps a lot of people with real talent to survive and to really uh, to really uh, make their talent work in an effective way without uh, without all these odd side jobs that you have to do here to survive. And I think um, that's maybe something I'd like to know from an American audience here, what they think about the system, which is, in, in the world, I think is quite unique. You have uh, uh, systems in Sweden and Germany that are more or less the same, but I think the Dutch system is uh, a rather unique system in which artists really get a chance to develop themselves and where poets, uh, when they are recognized, get money to just go and sit and write poetry. And um, for some people, uh, this may sound like a luxury, but I don't think it's a luxury. I think it's, it belongs to the obligations of a civilized country to, uh, to really spend uh, a, a certain amount of money on the arts. And uh, it's happening here, too. I know that the uh, National Endowment of the Arts and there are other institutions and foundations, too. But I think it's on a much smaller level. Um, I think maybe maybe it should be interesting to know from some of the uh, the people at the table here uh, what their attitude toward towards the Dutch uh, subsidiary system is. I mean, it's quite simple. I like it. You like it. <laughs> you like it. Because you don't have it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Gerrit, maybe. Yes. Wat ik wil zeggen is, I think the most typical uh, aspect of, of, of Dutch literature uh, is that it is written in Dutch. 
in an almost secret language. And so the, the help of, 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 of the government has something to do with this very small language area we have to live in. Mm -hmm. What you said, we go in the train one hour and a half and we are in another country and we have to talk another language. And the bookstores, not your books, but books of German writers or French writers or English writers. Uh, almost, I think, uh, 20 million people. Uh, the, 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 the copies of, of the books are, are, are small. Um, but that has nothing to say against the, the, the quality. And so I think it's, it's more or less the, 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 the moral perfecting uh, of this. Uh, the responsibility. Yeah, the responsibility of, of a government to, to help the artist. Mm -hmm. and, and in the first place, to help the, the writers. It has to do with in, 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 in a language, what is not recognized as a language in the, in, in, in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So that's um, that's that's also a practical reason. A for practical reason, yes, yes, yes. Uh, Although this is not the case, of course, for Dutch composers, or because I think all the arts are subsidized in Holland, and uh, um, writers get a little more than composers. But on the whole, it's it's the whole idea that it is important for uh, a culture uh, to. Uh, to make their artists, make it possible for the artists to work. There's perhaps uh, one uh, very important thing to tell. Uh, a lot of artists get money from the state, but the state is not, in any way, not involved in what they are, how they are spending mm -hmm. the money. The artists are completely free to do with it what they want, even if it is against the, the, the government. Yeah, yeah, that's very good that you tell that because that that's an argument that that you hear m very many times. That and we have seen, of course, in Eastern Europe and Russia, uh, how uh, uh, how it can work out when when the government gets a real grip on you just by by giving you favors. But this is really uh, the the Dutch government stays completely independent of. Uh, of the work that the artists make even if they receive money from the government. And that goes back to a very old tradition. In the middle of last century we had a minister, a liberal minister called Torbecke, and he created that idea of the different uh, split up thing between state and the artists. And that still works nowadays. Mm -hmm. Is there anybody who wants to comment on that? Anymore? No? Well, I think it's now, it's nine o'clock. We talk for one uh, one hour, a little more than one hour even. I'm amazed at our capability to fill it more than an hour about Dutch culture. But we could go on for hours, but we will not do that. Um, maybe there are some questions or comments you want to make. Yeah? Oh, yeah. We need a mic for that because it's taped, this conversation. Uh, you said that the Netherlands is a multicultural society today. Yeah. And yet you all look like a very homogenous group to me. I'd like you to comment on the ethnic presence and uh, how that participates in the literature today. Mm -hmm. Who wants to make a comment on that? 
months maybe? Well, perhaps I can do. We, we have uh, uh, also in literature, you can see it now very slowly, that there are writers uh, who were born in Holland, but with parents from different countries, from different parts of the world, who grew up, who studied, and who are now writers. We have uh, uh, writers who were refugees who are published in, in, uh, in Holland by, by Dutch publishing houses. And the basic thing of our, let us say, uh, uh, influence of, of writers who were born in another part of the world were the Dutchmen with, uh, with uh, a background of our colonies. And they are, for instance, the, the literature about our former colony, uh, uh, India, which is now called Indonesia, is very important. We have a very interesting literature about that with a, with a very old tradition. For instance, and we have from our uh, former colonies, like for instance the the ABC Isles, uh, Curaçao, uh, Aruba, uh, and so on. We have uh, writers which uh, write very uh, interesting novelist novels, especially because they mix are a mixture of this Dutch Caribbean culture. Um, there are uh, at least two theater groups in the Netherlands who are. Uh, Subsidized and who consists only of, well, uh, how do you say, non-white uh, Dutch people, uh, actors, yeah. directors, uh, and I think it is good because they have the chance to develop their own style of theatre making. On the other side, I think uh, there is the possibility that you create uh, a new ghetto. I mean. I would like all them to, to be together in one fantastic big or small theater company. But I think that that will happen. Eventually. Eventually. Yeah. yeah. More questions, comments to make? Yeah? The lady over there. Yeah, yeah. Is it long enough? Um, I've spent a fair amount of time in the Netherlands. My grandparents, this is very American of me, but my grandparents, as Ryan knows, came from Amsterdam. They were Dutch Jews. They came here in the early part of the century. They met here, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and Holland has in ways been quite kind to me in terms of my working there. But from Dutch friends that I have, in terms of subsidy for artists, and I'm speaking from the point of view of the Dutch friends I have who have been subsidized, I think subsidy does work really well for writers because of the nature of sitting in a room by yourself and spending time. Yeah? But um, for certain dancer, choreographer friends, even certain painter friends, um, the thing about having to wait tables, and I agree with you, I mean, it's a huge waste of time. But the thing it does show you is, first of all, what the form means to you, if you do keep going forward with it. And also, it's this, what I think of as, um, okay, I'll divide this into two. I think classically of the maternal as, darling, if you did it, I love it. This may not be true for everyone's mother, but it's just what I think classically. Mm -hmm. And the father is more like, prove it and show me. I think in some way that 
the, that the idea of a subsidy or when there was, if I'm not mistaken, a sort of kickback in painting, like if you bought, if a Dutch person bought Dutch painting, they would get a certain amount of it, something given back by the yeah. government. This, I think, I think it's a very, in other words, I'm not giving an answer and I'm not even really, I'm not even criticizing, I'm just saying I think it's the connection between the economy and art has always been and remains so difficult and that it can, when it comes to certain art forms, be quite difficult on the artists because they are not sure if it's the work that's worth it or if it's... Just the system that the keeps system. them going. That's yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I see we come in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I understand what you mean. I mean, it's, but I think it's dangerous, and even very romantic, to say that an artist has to suffer. That isn't what I meant. I knew I did it badly after all. Oh, that's what I understood uh, from the, your, your your start. No, no, no. I, I think I understood what you mean. Uh, there is a certain danger that, that such a subsidiary, uh, subsidiary system, like we have for painters, for instance, um, can work in such a way that uh, painters are only working for other painters if we're a small public, and, they, and, the, and the subsidiary system keeps them going, and they, 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 they really never discover if their work has a a value for the public or not. This is the same what Saul Steinberg told me a couple of years ago uh, about the development in modern art. He said, today there are too many artists that are born and made in the museums and not in the outer world. And this is the same danger that such a uh, system uh, could have for artists, for certain artists. That's true. That, that, that's a danger, but on the other hand, um, like I said before, uh, and not helping them at all means that a lot of talent is, is just wasted. I agree. Um, no, I mean, this is a mm -hmm. very Philistine place, and I'm not in any way supporting the way that mm -hmm. artists are treated mm -hmm. in America. No, but I mean, <laughs> when, when, when you make theater, it's, it's, it's very uh, evident for everybody in the theater, for the actors, for the audi audience. If you have an audience, and if you would continue to perform for uh, empty houses, the government will say, okay, give the subsidy to somebody else, uh, which happens, and there is always a continu continuing fight going on, uh, how full the houses have to be, and uh, uh, how bad the productions have to be to please them. I mean, that's, that's the other side. Yeah, yeah. I would I think that's exactly the, the dangerous point of what she's intending. I mean, <coughs> a lot of uh, our theatre would not be there if it wasn't subsidised, if it was only uh, dependent of the common of the uh, the market system. Free productions in Holland are there, not subsidised, and they have full audiences, and they are terrible. And making it possible that theatre, well, the most of the time they're terrible. I see you. Yeah. They're terrible, Jan. <laughs> well. 
most of the 90% is terrible, believe me. And um, the possibility that, for example, your group, Tunilk Amsterdam, uh, can experience, can make um, productions which are very, very important of in artistic way of developing theatre. It wouldn't be there if it was, it had to uh, um, uh, make competition with the so-called free theatre. So I think in that way, it's really a responsibility of, um, of the government to create um, the, the, the space, the room, for uh, development in artistic way, and that is a risk. And you cannot um, make the risk that big for, um, let's say, for painters that are painting their whole lives, that are producing 800 paintings that are, have to be stored somewhere um, because nobody wa wants to have them, but they might be, they might prove important after the death of the painter. I mean, there, there is a... Um, there is a problem. I, uh, there's a margin. Uh, um, uh, uh, well, there's a discussion which has the artist to prove and which has the government to take as a risk. In that way, I agree. But I think it's very important that that place for development is there. Yeah. I wouldn't say you you don't get your mm -hmm. audiences, but I I would say the the need for experiment is made possible also by the subsi uh, subventions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, m maybe. Um, um, I think. I think we um, we more or less came to uh, uh, to the end of the discussion. I just wanted to end up with an anecdote about uh, artists in Holland when they study at the Arts Ac Academy. Uh, they uh, and 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 they uh, they finish their studies. They have to care for this themselves for two years before they can ask some form of subs subsidy from some uh, local or uh, governmental organization that subsidizes the art. And in between, they have to show that they function as artists in society. And the only way to show that is to have exhibitions. And there comes there come other people in, and now I come to the, the start of, of uh, of the, the talk of this evening. Uh, I know uh, a man who, uh, who bought a house in Amsterdam and painted gallery Janssen on the front uh, of the house, uh, which had a, a shop and, 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 and an apartment. And he himself lived in the apartment. And he rented out this shop. He made it into a gallery. He just painted it white. And he rented it out to the artists so that they could have exhibitions there. And he asked them uh, an enormous amount of money for that. And uh, so they had their exhibition, and they asked the family, and the family bought their paintings just to help the young artists. And then this man asked 40% for that. And they had to sit in the gallery themselves. They had to, they had to pay for uh, the prints and everything, and the drinks with, at the opening for everything. So there are always, even if we have the subsidiary system, there are always Dutch people that... Uh, <laughs> That know a way of making a living out of that system, you know. <laughs> so we are.
we are idealists and very practical people at the same time. I hope that, uh, I thank you all for attending this evening. I hope to see many of you back in a couple of, in two days. And uh, the only thing I forgot to say, I'm, I'm most ashamed that I didn't tell you, was that there was one other writer on the list for tonight, Rudolf Geel, president of Dutch Pen. He fell ill just on the day that we should leave for the United States. And uh, he's a little better now, but he was still unable uh, to fly over. So um, that's just one piece of information that uh, you should have before you leave here. Thank you uh, for all my colleagues. I think I can speak to you. Thank you for your attention. Thank you.